Um, our Bible reading this morning is John chapter 18, verses 1 to 14. Jesus arrested. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and the disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the touchment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. And Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. uh, Good morning. It'd be great to keep that uh, passage open. As uh, as you know, we've had a break, obviously, last week with camp, but then um, the last little while, and even heading back into last year, we've been reading through John's Gospel together, and that's what we're continuing this morning. Uh, we're going to sort of, I've been reading, preparing through the whole chapter, so it's like 40 verses, so there's a fair bit, but keep it open, and of course, it does mean you can't sort of discuss every issue, I encourage you to to be involved in your life groups, and you can sort of uh, ask your questions and and read it in more depth together there, but uh, we will walk through the story together and think through some of the uh, the broader issues in the, in the, in the whole chapter, so it'd be good to to have that in front of you. Uh, So as we uh, consider John 18, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking through the Bible and for guiding us and enlightening us by your Holy Spirit. Help us this morning to be inspired, uh, encouraged, provoked if we need that by the example and words of Jesus as he faces his, his trial, his unjust trial in John 18 and we pray in his name. Amen. Well, uh, I don't want to make light of this. I mean, we'll all face our mortality at some point, but uh, this week uh, my wife Amy had a, a birthday, and many of you know it was one of those significant ones, and uh, somebody actually asked me during the week, you know, how she's thinking, and initially it was, well, you know, now I'm this age, I'm very wise, you'll have to listen to me, but we did have a conversation later in the week where we were discussing the life expectancy of people of our generation, and then sort of thinking about, well, in the best case scenario, like how many years have we got left? Wow, goodness, that's, you know, that's already gone quite quickly. 
and as I say, I don't want to make light of it because I know we all face mortality and some people have kind of faced that in more vivid ways than others. Uh, of course, some of you, uh, with respect, are further down the road. Uh, some of you have faced that with the death of, of family and friends, loved ones, uh, uh, spouses uh, and these sorts of things. And it is a really difficult thing, I think, to, to grapple with. And uh, as I said, I don't want to make light of it, but this is a story I was thinking about. And as I thought about my reaction to mortality, one incident came to mind when, from when Tommy was uh, just a little baby. And I thought, goodness, what does that say about how I uh, face mortality? Oh, we were, uh, we went, when, when we went to visit my friend Nathan in Bolivia, we were on a plane from Argentina to Bolivia. And my, when we got back, my brother-in-law, Amy's brother, took great delight in describing to me, like, it's just, you know, there's forces on a plane and updrafts and vacuums, blah, 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 and he loves it all, and it's just, you know, there's air pockets and different air temperatures, and look, that's fine, I get that kind of rationally, but when the plane sort of feels like it thuds on something, I hate it, I can't, you know, so I, I, I just don't like it. And, uh, and I remember I was sitting there in the plane, it was rocking all over the place, and we were probably going over the Andes Mountains or something, right? I know there's nothing to worry about, but like I was frozen. And I said to Amy, Tommy's sitting on my lap, he's uh, nine months old, and I said to Amy, if something happens like we need the gas mask or, so, or the oxygen mask or something, you better take Tommy, I can't move. <laughs> and I, I literally felt like I couldn't move my arms. So that was my courage in the face of what I perceived at that point as uh, being facing my mortality if something had happened with... Anyway, that, that, that was how I did that. But I wonder how you... You react, maybe, as I say, not to make light of it, you might have even faced uh, a, a more, vi a, a more um, pressing um, uh, issue that has had you confronting your own mortality. And what do we do? Do we just kind of freeze up in fear? Do we try and ignore that? Do we try to just put it off to one side, not think about it? Getting to exercise, health, fitness, the Botox, try and make ourselves look and feel younger. Do we deny that it's ever going to happen? Do we despair? Is death this inconquerable thing that is just going to loom over us and sort of make us fear? We all face mortality. None of us will live forever, however hard we try. And it can feel out of control, even hopeless. But this morning, I think Jesus shows us that uh, he didn't face his death with a sense of hopelessness. And as we look at the way that he faced his death in his trial in John 18, we'll see the sense, uh, how he faces his truth with courage, with determination and a sense that God is at work even uh, as he is facing that terrible suffering and death. So as I said before, we've read John uh, 18, 1 to 14. Keep the whole chapter open though. We'll, we'll read through, we'll, we'll sort of skip through bits and pieces of the whole chapter uh, we will start by walking through it together and just highlighting some of the aspects of chapter 18. But then at the end, just in summary, just to pull out two big ideas for us to think about more carefully, to go away from this morning, having thought about how Jesus faces his suffering and death and what that tells us about how we can face that same thing in our life. So as we walk, let's walk through the chapter together, have a look at, uh, at chapter 18. You see that it's... Uh, uh, well, if you look at uh, the book of John, and you've got it in paper version particularly, you can see we're getting close to the end of John's gospel now. And so John writes this in the last 
week before Jesus' death. And many churches around the world on this Sunday will be celebrating Palm Sunday, and I'll mention that again later on. But it's the week uh, of the Passover in in Jerusalem. It's this seven-day festival remembering what God had done for Israel uh, when he saved them from death and he brought them safely out of slavery in Egypt hundreds and hundreds of years before. And in the preceding chapters, the chapters before this, Jesus has gathered with his disciples in an upper room and he's shared a Passover meal with them. He's prayed for them and his followers to come in chapter 17. And uh, we didn't really, we didn't get time before Easter to study that chapter in detail, but it's one of my favorites because you see the heart of Jesus for his people and you see how he prays and longs for his people. I think it's, it's a lovely chapter, so you might want to go back and read that yourself. But uh, after this chapter for this morning that we, we read that... Um, Jesus will then be trialed and executed. Now, uh, our passage then, this morning, begins, it says, after he'd finished praying, they head off into a garden. And uh, we know that as the Garden of Gethsemane. Obviously, they'd been there before, because Judas, who's the one that Jesus predicted would betray Jesus, knows where they're going, and he knows where to lead the soldiers and where to find Jesus so that he can hand them over to the authorities to be arrested. Now John tells us that this detachment of soldiers, these leaders, religious leaders, they come to Jesus with torches and lanterns and weapons. They're armed, they're ready for a fight, some kind of resistance from Jesus. Uh, They expect to find him, I suppose, with a bunch of supporters. They expect to find him wanting to uh, resist arrest, wanting to rebel or something like that. And what is Jesus' reaction? What does Jesus do? Well, look at verse 4. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen. And he comes out to meet them. He doesn't run away, he doesn't freeze with fright. He knows what's going to happen. And he takes the initiative to go out and meet those who are coming to get him. And you might remember from passages such as John chapter 10 that Jesus had predicted that people were going to come for him. And it's not like it's out of his control. It's not like he's this passive victim. John 10, 17 to 18 sees Jesus saying that no one takes his life from him. Verse 18 particularly. But I lay it down of my own accord. He says, I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So even this instance where Judas betrays Jesus and comes at him with a bunch of soldiers ready for a fight, that is all within God's control and God's plan, and Jesus is confident in that. Verse 5 I find really interesting. Throughout John's Gospel, we've highlighted the way that when Jesus says, I am, it's a very deliberate way of speaking. And we get one here in in verse 5. And we get a really interesting reaction from those who hear Jesus say, I am. It doesn't sound like very spectacular, does it? Like, I I am. They come to him and they say, well, um, Jesus says, who is it you want? Earlier, and and Jesus simply says, I I am he. And you notice the reaction. The people draw back. They fall to the ground at these words, I am. Now, why? Why do they do that? Well, as we've highlighted time and again in John's Gospels, John has highlighted these words are packed with the Old Testament background. They're packed with meaning. Because this was the way 
that God had described himself to Moses in the burning bush. When Moses had asked God for his name, he said simply, I am who I am, I am. And whether the soldiers exactly understand that's what Jesus is kind of saying at this point, there's something about that encounter that reveals to them Jesus' divine identity and they're overwhelmed by it. They fall back. And it's, it's an incredible kind of a picture that, that Jesus in this instant is, is an awesome figure. They fall back in awe. So throughout these circumstances, Jesus remains in charge. Jesus is the one who is setting the tone. Jesus is the one uh, who's seeing that God is fulfilling his purposes in what's going on here. And so Jesus, because he cares about his people, he asks that his disciples are, are, are let free. So John again sees that as a, a, a fulfillment of scripture. But none of God's people, none of the disciples will be lost, except for Judas, of course, who betrayed Jesus. So you see that in verse 9. Jesus wants his people to go, he cares for them, he wants them not to be lost or harmed at this moment. And then it's at this point that Simon Peter jumps forward and uh, he has a swing at the high priest's servant with his sword and he cuts his ear off. And uh, there's this sort of, before this sort of scuffle can go any further, then Jesus, again, he takes charge of the situation. He calms it all down. He says, Peter, no, you know, stop. He orders him to put his soldiers, uh, his sword away. Jesus doesn't need protecting. He doesn't want like an armed resistance. Why? Because he knows this is all part of God's plan. And what, how does he put it? He says that he is to drink the cup from his father. And again, that's another Old Testament image. It's an image for God's judgment. There's, there's various uh, prophecies in the Old Testament, like in Isaiah and Jeremiah, that talk about God's cup of wrath being poured out on those who would rebel against God. And Jesus is saying that his death is going to be accepting that cup, accepting that judgment from God for the sins of his people. And he knows that that's why he's about to die. So he's led off to Annas in verse 13, a previous high priest, father-in-law of the current high priest Caiaphas. And he's still obviously got this position of respect in the community. He's called the high priest in other parts of the Bible. And so he gets the first crack at questioning Jesus. And while this is happening, two of his disciples, Peter and one who we assume to be John, even though it doesn't use his name, they're following. And I don't know about you, when I read this, this, this curiosity in me, like, how does John know, or how does the high priest know John? Um, who knows, right? Was he, was he wealthy or something like that? Doesn't say. But uh, anyway, was that just me? I don't know. That, that was my curiosity. How would this sort of fisherman from Galilee uh, know the high priest? He does. He's allowed in, and it takes a little bit longer. Peter has to stay outside, but eventually he gets in. And, uh, of course, uh, we see in this little episode something that I guess would have probably, in a sense, haunted Peter at the time. Uh, a servant, or he, Peter uh, comes into this courtyard eventually and he starts warming himself by a fire. And a servant girl notices him there. And she points out who he is. And Peter, of course, what does he do? He denies that he's ever known Jesus. And why does he do this? Well, again, who knows? Maybe fear? Pretty understandable, right? He's seen his leader, Jesus, who he had thought was going to lead this kind of victorious rebellion against the imperial Roman rule. He's seen him kind of led off in, in uh, being tied up and led off to 
the authorities. He knows there's a crowd kind of baying for his death. He wouldn't want to have been caught up in that and perhaps that's why he's fearful. He also uh, had been recognised as being the one who's cut off the temple servant's ear. So he's understandably fearful. It's interesting though because Peter had been the brave, bold one who'd said earlier in Jesus' life that he'd follow him into whatever, whether it's death or not. And confronted with that very reality now, he's afraid. He's scared for his own safety. Now at this point we go back to Jesus and, and Annas in verse 19. And Anna seems on for a bit of a theological debate. What, what are you saying that we don't know about? What, who are you really trying to claim you are? What are you really trying to do? There's some hidden agenda, isn't there? And Jesus says, well, no. You should know. I've always spoken in public. I'm not trying to be sneaky or underhanded in any way about what I'm teaching. It's all been there for you to see. You know, Annas, what I'm all about. You know the truth. And the people who are there with the high priest, with Annas at that time, they understand that Jesus is kind of rebuking him. And so someone steps forward and uh, slaps him, and then they send him all tied up off to Caiaphas, the current high priest. And we don't get in John's gospel what happens there. We're taken back to Peter, who again, on two more occasions, denies knowing Jesus. But of course, even this, a betrayal by a close friend, has all been within Jesus' view. He knew that was going to happen again. In chapter 13, verses 36 to 38, he predicted that, that um, before a rooster crows, uh, Peter would deny Jesus three times. But the encouragement for us here, I think, is to see that that wasn't the end of Peter's relationship with Jesus. And even as he would deny him so publicly and so fearfully, Later on, after his resurrection, Jesus would publicly and lovingly and gently restore him to friendship and offer him forgiveness and restore him to be the one who would spread, or one of the ones who would spread the news of Jesus' resurrection throughout the world. And so there's an example for us of the kind of love and generosity and grace that Jesus shows his people, even as he knows our weakness and our failings like every one of us has. Well, now Jesus, uh, going back to the story, is taken to Pilate. And he was the Roman governor of the region. He's known as, in history, probably not a very good governor in lots of ways. Kind of brutal, a little bit arbitrary in some of his rulings. And that's who Jesus is taken to. He is, we are told, the only one with the authority to sentence him to death. In verses 28 to 40, big section of, the, of this chapter, there's this big back and forth between Pilate and the crowd... Uh, from one perspective, you could say it's all going really badly for Jesus because it's like Pilate wants to kind of let him off. He doesn't kind of want to... He, he almost shows disdain for the whole thing. I don't want to be involved in your religious disputes. Like, you guys sort it out, whatever. But the crowd keep coming back to him. No, we want him tried. We want him crucified. Has he done anything wrong? No, I can't find anything. No, we want him crucified. And it's this back and forth. And it seems like there's just these, these circumstances conspiring against Jesus. I mean, we know he's innocent. I think Pilate kind of gets that he's innocent. And yet it seems inevitable that he's going to die. 
because this crowd, this, this crowd is just baying for his blood as the religious leaders egg, him, egg them on. It seems so unjust. But we see that even this works into Jesus' plans. This is all part of God's plan. And in fact, the very, the very fact that they had to take him to Pilate shows that it's all part of God's plan. Because you think about some of the other people who were killed without the authority of the Romans, like Stephen will later be killed uh, in the book of Acts. He's stoned as this mob kind of gets this frenzy and gets all worked up. But Deuteronomy 31 has told us that those who are hung on a tree are under God's curse. And so when Jesus is hung on a tree, it's a fulfillment of Deuteronomy 31. That he would be cursed under God's curse to take the penalty for our sin. And so even this works into God's plan, that Jesus would be, lift, would be lifted up, that he would be crucified. And crucified, as we know, for the sins of his people. Now moving to verse 28, we see that um, there's this hypocrisy on display here. As the, 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 the religious people, as they bring Jesus in to uh, Pilate's, Pilate's uh, uh, residence, they themselves don't want to go in because of, at, the at the time of the Passover, Passover, it was ritually unclean to go into the area of a Gentile person, a non-Jewish person. And so they don't want to kind of grubby themselves in that way or they don't want to disobey that kind of ritual while at the same time they're looking to try and kill God's son, Jesus. It's a reminder for us that in God's eyes, ritual and ceremony, even good ones, like being baptised and taking communion, could be used wrongly by us, us humans. Uh, they could be used wrongly to kind of keep God at arm's length, to sort of feel like we've kind of done what we need to do, our little ritual, I shouldn't say little, sorry, our ritual, even ones that God has blessed and commanded, to feel like we've done what we need to do, but not really give our lives to Jesus. Sometimes people want to do easy kind of rituals and not do the hard work of together following, uh, uh, following Jesus and following what it looks like to live for Jesus in this world. There's this natural inclination in our hearts to want to offer God easy ritual, but not to live exactly the way that he wants us to live, to offer our hearts. And that's far more important to God. And so we see the hypocrisy here. So the religious leaders, they want Jesus publicly and legally executed. They want to stamp out this movement of Jesus' followers uh, and they want the Romans to be the ones who authorise that and who are responsible for that. As I said before, Pilate's dismissive. It's like he, just, he couldn't care. He doesn't, he, he doesn't want to get involved in their religious disputes. It's like he wants to show that it's beneath him. But verse 33, he does go back in and he asks Jesus if he's the king of the Jews, which probably pleases the religious people because if they're going to get Roman authority... They need to know, or it needs to be a kind of political sedition charge. They need to be, they need, he needs to be seen to be undermining uh, Rome and like a traitor. So how does Jesus respond? Well, in verse 36, he says his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. He's not trying to take over politically. He's not trying to usurp the Roman Empire physically because his kingdom doesn't work like that. His kingdom is not something given and ruled by any human being. It's a kingdom that's given and ruled by God. And already God's kingdom is, is alive and active in this world. 
And one day it will come with great power and great visibility, but it's not of this world. It's not brought about by any person, any political struggle in this world. And Jesus says to Pilate, if you're interested in truth, you'll see that he is truth. That, that Jesus came into this world to speak truth and that you're standing in front of someone who is truth and who speaks truth if you want to listen to that. But in verse 37, what does Pilate do? He's, if he's confused, maybe. But he might also have just been evasive. He tries to dodge Jesus' questioning. And he says, what is truth? How can I know truth? There's so many competing ideas out there. I'll just avoid the very question. And so he goes back out to the crowd with one more proposition. He says, uh, it's tradition at Passover to release a prisoner, so how about I release Jesus to you? And as you know, the crowd refuses. They want not the innocent Jesus to go free, they want the violent criminal Barabbas to go free. And so as we'll remember next week on Good Friday, Jesus is then taken to be executed on the cross. So having walked through this story, I want to go back to our original question. What does Jesus' reaction and his action, his words about his imminent death teach us about, tell us about Jesus and how we're meant to think about even death for ourselves? Two brief points. The first is to see how completely death is within God's control. We know and have experienced, each one of us, and so I'm sure, in, in some way, how death is a terrible consequence of our sin. It's, it's an intrusion into our world. It's not the way that God had intended his world to be when we look at Genesis chapter 1. God wanted us to experience life, and he wanted to experience life with him, obeying him, listening to him, but people didn't do that. And by our rebellion, there's a kind of curse on our world. That means death is a part of our world. And death separates us from loved ones. Death is a tragedy. But even so, we see Jesus, who remains calm and confident and in control, because he knows that his death will achieve a great purpose. Jesus knows what's going to happen, and he knows exactly why it's going to happen. Think about verses 4, verse 9. Verse 32, even verse 37, there are a number of times in this passages where John emphasizes again that all these things are happening to fulfill God's plan, to fulfill the scriptures that have been written and spoken many hundreds of years before. Jesus is in, in charge of this whole story, of this whole incident. Remember, Jesus is a good shepherd looking after his flock. He cares for his people, his sheep, and he wants them to experience life. We see this in little ways, in the way that he protected his disciples and wanted them to go free, even his, his arrested. But we see that he is protecting his sheep, protecting his people, by putting himself in harm's way, by staring death down for us and taking that on board for us. Jesus would take the cup of God's judgment on himself. And he would do that willingly. He wasn't kind of like dragged into it. He wasn't uh, unwilling. He's not an innocent sort of victim, even though he is innocent. He willingly laid down his life for us, his people, so that there's no more sin left to pay for. And so we see the worst thing that could happen to Jesus. I mean, the, the death he died was excruciating. 
was all part of God's plan. And as we think about that, I'm not saying it's, all, it's going to be easy for us to face mortality. It's not easy for us to face suffering. We've probably all experienced ourselves those moments of doubt and questioning when we see others particularly going through suffering, facing their mortality. It might cause us to question. It's certainly difficult. But it's not too difficult for God. It's not too difficult for Jesus. He has stared down death for us and in our place. The question of how powerful and loving God allows suffering is certainly one of the most difficult questions that people wrestle with. But Jesus shows that even where wicked people, and and the plans they have are wicked, even where they are acting and doing things that seem terrible it's within his plan so you look at the fact that it is these are initiated at one level by 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 people doing wrong things for the sake of politics right the high priest wants to kill an innocent man i mean it's shocking he just wants to maintain his position of power over the people he doesn't want to cause a fuss with the romans roman authorities he doesn't want to give a sense that the jewish people are going to rebel and cause problems for them and that sort of stuff. He, wants, he just wants to keep his authority. So, so they want to kill an innocent plan. I mean, it's, it's, it's evil stuff. And yet it's God's plan. And so it is natural for humans to fear suffering and death and even for Christians to do that. And perhaps if you place yourself in a situation like Jesus was facing, you might be tempted to run or, or fight or, or whatever it might be. But at the same time, because we know that Jesus has stared down, for our, uh, stared down death for us, we can have confidence and we can grow in that confidence because he's left his spirit for us so that we can take on the character and the attitudes of Jesus in our own lives. And as we face our mortality, I think there is a hope that Christians can have that death won't be the end, that death is not de- does not defeat God. And that through death, his plans are very often, but most uh, vividly, um, carried out in Jesus' life. Because God is with us, we can grow in confidence, we can have hope when we consider our mortality rather than have fear. Many of us have heard really wonderful Christian testimonies of people who've died with contentment and confidence as as they face that, that Jesus has conquered death, that there's nothing in death for us to fear. So we can be encouraged by that this morning. The second point to make uh, is that truth, Jesus shows, is more important than self-preservation. Through this incident, Jesus keeps his focus on what is true. And the truth that he wants to tell the world is that he is the Son of God. He is the one who reveals God to us and to this world. He challenges challenges his accusers to see the truth of his kingdom even though they don't want to. So you see, Annas, he refuses the truth. Pilate just avoids the truth. Peter is fearful of the truth. And the crowds just go along with whatever is popular. So so Annas, like the religious leaders before him, they know their Old Testament. They know who they should be looking for when they look uh, for the prophesied Messiah. But with all those signs coming together in Jesus, they avoid the truth. Why? In selfishness. They like things the way they are. They like the status quo, they like their power, they like their authority. And so they ignore the truth. 
Jesus, uh, Peter rather, is fearful to face the truth. And perhaps this is one that some of us can identify with. He doesn't want to be known at this time as one of Jesus' followers. And many of us, as we've even heard at church camp, many of us can struggle to stand up and be one of Jesus' followers in public because it's, it can be tough. So I wonder if uh, people at work or at school or in your circle of friends know that you're a Christian or are you fearful of what they would think and say, how they would react if they knew that you were a Christian. It's certainly not easy at times. The crowd, as I mentioned, are not interested in truth. They're just swept up in whatever the rest of the crowd's doing, whatever's popular at the time. Uh, as I said before, many churches around the world celebrate this Sunday as Palm Sunday, the week before Jesus, uh, the week that Jesus, the week before his death and resurrection, but the week where he enters Jerusalem in triumph and they're all hailing him as a king. And then this is the same crowd who are now baying for his blood. They're crying out for his crucifixion truth matters but so often we can just be uh, we can just uh, be caught up in whatever's popular at the time without doing our own thinking without seeing what is really truth because truth really is there jesus is truth he is our creator he is where we find truth and in our world there's many competing voices for what's true many conflicting versions of the truth and perhaps that's what that's what Pilate's issue is he just doesn't want to think about it and it can be easy for us to do the same because Jesus' claim to being the truth is very confronting. If Jesus is the truth, if he is the son of God, then that means that there are a lot of ways of seeing the world, a lot of ways of seeing God even, that are not true. And it can be confronting to speak that into this world. Lots of people want to say things like all religions are the same. Why? Because we want to get on. We want to be at peace with other people. But if they make conflicting statements about who Jesus is, they, just, they both can't be true. And so if we're on the side of truth, then we need to see that Jesus is the unique Son of God who died and rose for us. The truth of who Jesus is is in, in, in the proof of who Jesus is, is in his resurrection. And while there's a lot of things that we can't know, there's a lot of things even about Christianity that might confuse us, one thing we can explore and come to conclusions about is whether Jesus really did rise from the dead. And is that true or not? And I'd challenge us that truth is more important than what's popular. Christians are certainly going to be seen as silly at times, they're going to mock us. Of course, death is the end. I mean, we've never seen anybody rise from dead. It's impossible. We'll have a look at the evidence as we see it in the Bible, as we see it in the early church, as we see it in the empty tomb. Jesus' resurrection shows that he is the truth. One last thing to say and to challenge us with is that as Jesus tells us that his kingdom is not of this world, it even challenges the way we do things like uh, our politics and the way that we think about our world uh, in terms of what we're trying to do and create and what we're aiming for here in our world. Of course, in lots of ways, political engagement's good. I encourage that. But it's a reminder to us that whatever party we support, whatever individual we support, whatever cause we get behind, as good as they may be, they're never going to bring in the kingdom of God in this world. We wait for Jesus to do that in his return. And so we hold our politics lightly. 
I know many of us can kind of, we look at one party as if it's completely good and right and perfect and the other as if it's completely wrong and absurd and evil. But the truth is that neither party, neither our big parties, neither our, none of our political causes will bring in the kingdom of God because it's not of this world. And so we need to hold on to those things lightly. And as we engage in doing good in our world, we also do so with the uh, looking forward to the fact that only God will perfect this world when Jesus returns. And so we need to be humble in the way that we engage in, uh, in causes in our world. Well, to finish this morning, I think the way that Jesus, or we see in John 18, the way that Jesus faces his own mortality gives us reason to face our mortality with confidence. Because Jesus' death wasn't out of his control. Jesus died for a purpose, willingly, to give his life for yours. Because he died, you can go free. You can have eternal life. He is truth. His promises will never fail. And as much as it might sound fanciful, Jesus rose and he'll return. And we can have confidence in the truth of that.